0: Well, hello there. This is Aaron, pastor for Riverwood. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. Before we get into the message, I just want to kind of give you a heads up on something. Uh, This past Sunday, November 5th, I spoke on the revelation of Jesus. We looked at the book of Revelation and saw how it pointed at Jesus as part of our His Story series. However, we had an issue with our recorder. Rather than receiving the the feed through the, the soundboard, the line, what happened was the recorder captured the entire room. And so what you're hearing hearing is just the feed from the entire room that we're in, so you're going to hear the guys back at the soundboard who were serving that morning, you're going to hear uh, coughs and, and some babies in the audience, um, and so I sound really far away, and so I just want to give you the heads up that if you get into this and you just can't make it through, I completely understand. But for those in our church family who didn't get a chance to listen to it and wanted to to try and hear the the message, we thought we'd still put this out there for you. So if you're able to hear it, I hope it's a big, big blessing to you. And if you just can't make it through, I don't blame you one bit. And uh, you can go ahead and turn it off and we'll trust that God will help you to continue to grow spiritually and see Jesus even through the book of Revelation in some other way. So without further ado, here is the revelation of Jesus. Good morning, everyone.
1: Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron. I'm a teaching pastor here at Riverwood, and uh, I'm thrilled to have every single one of you here uh, with us this morning. When I was a kid, my mom was an elementary school teacher, and one of the perks of being an elementary school teacher, other than summers off, is you got some really sweet deals on Scholastic book orders. Right? My mom would use some of the sweet deals to get me presents for Christmas, birthday. I owe my entire Calvin Hobbes collection to my mom. I am forever in her debt. Uh, as are my children, as they now have discovered the beauty and joy of Calvin. But also another type of book that my mom used to give me were the Magic Eye books. Anyone here remember Magic Eye books? Okay, yeah, yeah, come of you. They were books filled with what are called stereograms. A, a stereogram is something that on the surface looks like a two-year-old tried to replicate a Rembrandt or Monet masterpiece. I mean, it looks like an absolute mess. But, when you begin to look through it, a 3D picture begins to emerge, and you see that there's something there. Now, I know some people who cannot see the magic eye picture in the stereogram, and so they think that those of us who can have to this conspiracy, (laughs) pretending that it's, it's there, I'm telling you, it's really there. It's real. I can see them. Some of you have castings the head nods. You can see them. Right? There really is something there. On the surface, it looks like a mess. It looks like nothing. But as you peer through it, you see something deeper. I think that phenomenon happens a lot in life. I think there's things in life where on the surface, it appears like one thing is going on. But when you begin to look deeper, you start to get a different picture. For instance, let's say you show up at work or school and your boss just seems really, really peeved. at you. He or she starts complaining about your work. You haven't turned in your homework on time, right? You just didn't do it well enough. And suddenly, like, they're chipping at you, a little by little by little. And you're starting to just think, like, what did I do wrong? And, like, all day long, you're plotting your revenge. Like, she's gonna find out. But what you don't know is just found out her husband having an affair and was a divorce. You just ended up being the target for anger. It on the surface looked like one thing, but there was something deeper going on. This happens, I think, more frequently than we realize. I think it happens within families, within certain family dynamics. But without a doubt, it happens in politics. I think it happens even within churches. I mean, it, it probably is happening regularly, even just at the school lunch table. Regularly. One thing appears to be going on, but if you really peer into it, you can see in something else. I think that's really the description of the book of Revelation. This book, the last book of the Bible, is in a catalog of all its own. It's called Apostolic Literature. Because on the surface, it appears to be about the times, and as you read it, it sounds like a rated R fantasy movie because it's filled with dragons, and demons, and beasts, and antichrists, and other bad guys, and, and like the horrific mass death. I mean, this thing is scary. When I was a kid, I would sometimes read the book of Revelation for my devotions because hey, mom and dad can't complain if their sons sitting there reading the Bible. But honestly, I was not trying to grow spiritually. I was reading it because I'm fascinated and yet horrified by what I'm reading. And I'm trying to figure out what it means. I think a lot of us make that mistake with the book of Revelation. We get caught up in the fanciful parts of it. We see the messy picture. And we don't realize that there's something deeper. Today, we're going to look at this book and we're going to see that in the middle of this mess is a beautiful, deep picture of Jesus. And we're going to see that the book of Revelation points to Jesus in at least four different ways. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. We're going to be starting in verse 9. I turn it to Revelation 1-9, let me just give you a little bit of background. Uh, this book is written by the Apostle John. John is really old at this point, all right? He, uh, in fact, let's uh, go back in time. Let's go back to 95, A.D. John is probably in his 80s. All of his friends, the other apostles, have all died, most all of them, for their faith. They were martyred. You see, Rome began to see this whole Jewish movement that began to become known as Christianity as a threat because these Christians... Would not say Caesar is Lord, they kept saying Jesus is Lord. Their allegiance did not appear to be with Rome. And so Rome begins to come in and try to stomp this out. Except it wasn't working. Because the spread of Christianity was like a wildfire in a dry temper. Every time Rome tried to stomp it out, it just spread the fire even further. So Rome is starting to get desperate. And so, they pick up John, one of the last leaders, and they drop him off on the island of Patmos. Now, if we were in our old age, dropped off on an island, this would sound like a really nice retirement. But you've got to keep in mind, there's no beach resort where John can just kick back and read a book. right? The game of golf had not been invented yet. He gets no cell phone service out here. He can't even watch Netflix. There's nothing to do! You know, it's horrific, isn't it? So, what do you do when there's nothing to do? Well, if you're an apostle, you start praying. And that's where we find John in verse 9. He's on the island of the path. He's praying when something happens. And that brings us to the first point of today. The first point that we see is that the book of Revelation unveils Jesus. The book of Revelation unveils Jesus. Uh, join me in verse 9. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and in his face was, oh, and, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I want you to see this from John's point of view. It's a Sunday, but he's got no church family to gather with so he has his own little kind of worship time. And as he's worshiping in the Spirit, he suddenly hears a voice. And so he turns and looks, and he sees a guy unlike any other guy he's ever seen. I mean, just look at that description. The guy has white hair. He's holding stars in his hand. His voice is like rushing waters. I mean, a sword's coming out of his mouth. I mean, this is really kind of freaky. Like, you can only see this in comic books, and yet it's standing right there in front of John. Who in the world is this crazy-looking dude? Well, he actually identifies himself. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I think if I saw that in person, I probably would do the same. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I die, and behold, I am alive forevermore." And I have the keys of death and Hades. So who is this? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You you notice what he says about himself. But first, he says there that I am the first and the last. That is a divine title that comes from the book of Isaiah. Only God used it. And yet, here's this human-looking figure in front of him saying, I am God. Well, the only person who can claim full humanity and full divinity is Jesus. So we know that this is Jesus. But Jesus wants to make sure that John really knows who this is. So he next says, I am the living one. I have died, am dying, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Well, history records that Jesus died on a cross, but rose again from the dead. He died, but now is alive forevermore. So if there's any question, that right there seals it. But just to make sure... Jesus tacks on one more. He says, I hold the keys of death and Hades." When Jesus burst out of that grave alive, he conquered death. So now he holds the keys to death. He has authority over it. This is without a doubt Jesus. But if you go back and look at that description again, it sure doesn't look like Jesus. So, I mean, I see the paintings. I, Jesus has dark hair, not white hair. His face isn't shining like the sun. I haven't seen a sword protruding from his mouth. What is going on? The word Revelation means unveiling. When we hear of the book of Revelation, we often think that it means it's the unveiling of the end times. And it is. But if you go back to verse one of this entire book, it says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what I learned this week is that the Greek is really kind of ambiguous. It's nebulous. Because, yeah, it's a revelation from Jesus, but it's also a revelation of Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And so the reason Jesus looks like a Marvel comic superhero at this moment is because you're now seeing him with spiritual eyes, not just human eyes. But when we looked at the miracles of Jesus a few weeks ago, we saw in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus stood up in a boat with nothing but a word calling a storm. And, and it really freaked out the disciples because they got a glimpse of his divinity, of his power. Now John sees Jesus and there's no more earthly shell kind of masking that divine power. He is seeing it full force. It's right there. He's now seeing Jesus more clearly than ever.
0: Revelation
1: is actually not just here to point us to the end times. It actually helps us to see Jesus even better, to see who he is. It unveils more of who he is before us. So that's the first thing that the book of Revelation does. It unveils Jesus. The second thing is that the book of Revelation uh, is from Jesus. The book of Revelation is from Jesus. Look at the very next verse, verse 19 there, chapter 1. Jesus is still speaking to John. He says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Jesus shows up and doesn't just say, John, it's been a while. How are you doing? No, he says, all right, I've got a sign for you. Write this down. And even the very first thing that Jesus said to him when he appeared, when John's in his little worship circle, back here in verse 11, Jesus says, write what you see in a book. So Jesus is saying, I want you to write. I'm going to give this to you. Which means that this entire book is coming to us from Jesus. Now, I believe that all of the scriptures have been, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that it's all been God-breathed. Breathed out by God, inspired by God. The way most people understand that is that God spoke to these prophets, these apostles, these different disciples, spoke to them and through them. He guided the process. He used their personality, He used their course. He used their cultural background. But yet, when you look at 66 different books written by 40 different authors, and you bring those together over, what, it's like 1,500 years, and you see this incredible cohesion. You starts suspecting that perhaps this isn't forty different authors. It, it, maybe it's really like one author. That there's a dirty little secret within Christendom that when you go to the bookstore and you see some famous pastor's book there, you've got his name right on it. There's a good chance that it was actually written by a ghostwriter. Now, this ghostwriter has done a lot of work. The, the ghostwriter will go and like listen to the pastor's sermons. Uh, might read other books by the pastor, might actually sit down and, and interview the pastor, trying to capture the pastor's voice, style, way to do things. And then they go and they write the book. The pastor will read through it and say, yeah, sounds good, I like it. Get their stamp of approval, the name gets on it, and then the book sells a bunch. Well, the Bible is ghostwritten.
0: God allowed these disciples,
1: the apostles, the prophets, to have their names put on some of these books God's the one who guided it. And yeah, He allowed their personality, their voice to come through, but it's really one author. It's really written by the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sent. So God is the author of the scriptures. However, in the other 65 books that we have in the scripture, Jesus was not standing there next to them saying, All right, hey, write this down. No, I spelled that wrong. No. It's the Holy Spirit working in them, through them, but for, as far as they do, they're sitting in a room by themselves, right? You're Moses, you're sitting in a tent out in the desert, you know, right in Pentateuch. But here in Revelation, Jesus does it different. He doesn't just send a spirit to kind of guide John what's right. Jesus appears himself and says, write this down. Write what I'm about to tell you. And so if you continue on into chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see seven letters written to the seven famous churches of John's day. And Jesus is saying, I want you guys to hear this. And those letters include encouragement, they they include correction, but basically it's just Jesus saying, guys, come back to me, get your foundation on the gospel, don't leave this. And and he's trying to encourage them in the middle of this Roman persecution going on. But Jesus is not done. When you get to the end of chapter 3, suddenly you get to chapter 4, Jesus says, hey hey John, come with me. And he immediately takes him up to heaven. And that's when the really fanciful stuff starts. That's where John starts seeing some really crazy things. And we read it and think, this is weird. Well, imagine if you were John with your first century mind, your Palestinian upbringing, all you've known as Judaism, and now you're standing in heaven. How would you go about describing angels? How would you go about describing these elders, these different creatures? How would you describe it as best you possibly could? But your world, your life, your filter's on it. So John's just doing the best he can. And like, it's all right. Write these things down. Because this is for some people who need to hear it. And this is where then in heaven we see the third point. Is that not only does the book of Revelation unveil Jesus and is from Jesus, but we see that this book is actually about Jesus. And, and if you've ever gone to the grocery store and thought, like, you know what, we're really spice things up. We're gonna buy like some really exotic fruit juice. I know my world, we look, we look crazy in the birdhouse. I, and you don't know, just pick out the grape juice. Like you go know, for the passion mango peach. You know, some really strange combination. you just so good. You get it home, you get ready to make it right before you crack it open, you look at the ingredients list, and the first thing listed is apple juice. Like, what no, I want I want peach. I want mango. And yet it's like 60% apple juice. So often there's a name on it, but the contents are different. And that's what happens here with the book of Revelation, because as soon as we get going to chapter 4, chapter 5, we, we start thinking, oh, okay, now this is all about the end times." And what we forget is actually the contents are Jesus. And chapter 5 shows that to us very, very vividly. So we're going to read we're going to hear chapter 5, but I'm going to do it in a creative way. I found a video this week
0: that reads chapter 5. Just to warn you, it actually grabs
1: a couple of verses out of chapter 4 to set the stage. Then it reads chapter 5 all the way until the, almost the end. It leaves off the very last verse of chapter 5. So if you want to have your Bibles open and read as, uh, try to follow along as the video re, uh, reads aloud, go ahead. Or if you just want to follow along with the, the video, that's a quote. But here's Revelation 5 for
2: There before me was a throne in Heaven, with someone sitting on it.
1: From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings,
2: and peals of thunder. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. Then I saw on the right hand of Him who sat on the throne
1: a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven, or on earth,
2: or under the earth can open the scroll, or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because
1: no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not
2: weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he was taken in, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down
1: before the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on your I mean, he's been instructed by Jesus to write these things down. So he wants to know what's in the scroll. Suddenly, like, no one is worthy. <laughs> none of the angels, none of the elders, none of these fanciful creatures, and they can't find anyone on earth or under the earth. How is John going to fulfill his assignment? How is John going to find out and in the overwhelmingness of it all, he? The angel says, do not cry because what happens next. He says there's someone worthy. Someone is absolutely worthy to open this. And who isn't? Now, I, I love the, how the Bible Project puts this. The Bible Project is a series of videos that where they explain the scripture. Well, I'll, I'll actually get the uh, video on the Facebook page so you can go and watch this yourself. But I love how they point out what happens right
0: here. It says that what he hears is that the lion of Judah, the root of David, is one. But then
1: what he sees isn't a lion, it isn't a root, he sees a lamb. And the lamb doesn't just stand there and bleat. The lamb looks like it's been slain, and yet it's alive. So why does a slain that lamb, the alive? worthy to open a scroll? Well, it's because of what the elders say. Look at it with me. Chapter 5, verse 9. The elders saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So if you haven't figured it out yet, this lamb the same crazy dude we saw in chapter one, it's Jesus. He died for people. He died for their sins to ransom them so that God would have every tribe, language, nation, people in his family. This is Jesus. So why is he a lamb? Because the lambs used to be sacrificed by the Jews for their sin. And so Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice was called the Lamb of God. John the Baptist identified it in such in John, I think it's chapter 1. He said, That's, there's the Lamb of God He takes away the sin of the world. So, so what's up with this lion of Judah and this root of David? Well, those are messianic titles from the scriptures. They pointed to the Messiah, and so they're declaring right there in heaven, this is the Messiah. It's Jesus. He's the lion and he's the Lamb. It's all about him. He's the star of this story. Because what you see next is he begins to break the seals on those scrolls. And as he breaks to the seventh, it suddenly launches the announcement of seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets lead into the pouring out of seven bowls. Now, some people say that those sevens are all the same thing, others say no, it's a cheap reaction. But the point is. All the craziness that you see in Revelation starts because of this lamb who was slain, who's worthy to crack open the scroll, just read it out, and it all begins there. Jesus is the star. So this book isn't just from him and unveils him, it's also about him. And all that takes place is because he starts it, which means he's in. That leads us to our fourth point, is that all that takes place shows us that in the book of Revelation, it celebrates Jesus' victory. It celebrates Jesus' victory. Flip all the way back to Revelation 19. Like the world's most famous stories, this story, Revelation, contains But I want to remind you, we've been in a series called His Story, looking at how the entire scriptures point to Jesus. We started this all the way back in January when we moved into this building. And we've just been tracking along all year, just bouncing through, kind of like skipping a rock across the waters. And every time the rock touches back down, we see Jesus. There he is again. There he is again. All of this points to Jesus. And now we come to the final chapter time will see, and we see he wins. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Lord, Lord. When Jesus began his public ministry at about the age of 30, the Jewish people really the, I should say Jewish people, the Jewish leaders really struggled with him. First, he didn't come through their schooling system like they had. So they, they weren't so sure about it. But then he goes and starts doing all sorts of things. And so people start whispering, Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? But when this so-called Messiah started saying things like, Oh, love your neighbor, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, many of these Jewish leaders began to reject him. Because, you see, when they would go and study the prophecies of the
0: Hebrew Scriptures,
1: what they saw was that the Messiah was to be a conquering king. And yet when they hear, turn the other cheek, that doesn't sound very kingly. And then when he goes and lets himself get killed and dies a shameful death on a cross, definitely not a king. So they rejected him as the Messiah. But you see, there was more prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures than just a conquering king. There was also these prophecies of a suffering servant. Jesus had to come first to suffer in our place, to take our penalty, to die our death so that sin could be paid and we could be forgiven. But remember, there's all those prophecies of the conquering king. And now they're being fulfilled, right here in Revelation 19. Jesus is a conquering king, a warring general, leading his troops, and he will win. And if you keep going, you see in chapter 20, the defeat of Satan. You see the final judgment of people. And then when chapter 21 starts, you see the final scene begin to unfold. So join me in 21, starting in verse 1. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and born for her husband. And behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I get some of those seven verses in two words. Jesus wins. He wins. Now, Jesus defeated sin on the cross. It, at, th- at that moment, when Jesus died on the cross and came out of the grave on the third day, it, it was done through sin. But if you're honest, you might be saying, yeah, if sin was defeated at the cross, why do I still sin? Well, why do I still screw up? Why do I much sin in our world? That's because it's kind of like yesterday's Iowa-Ohio State football When you got to about halfway through the fourth quarter, it was pretty obvious, Iowa won. There there was no way Ohio State was gonna be able to score enough points to come all the way back. However, there was still time on the clock, and so they still had to play the game. So when Ohio State had the ball, they're still trying to run and throw and score. But basically, the game was done. just for waiting for the clock to tick to zero. When Jesus died on the cross, he got such an insurmountable lead that sin could no longer overcome it. But there's still time on the clock. And so sin is still running the play, is still trying, and he might even score sometimes. But Jesus has already won. And what you are seeing in chapter 21 is the clock reaching zero, and sin has been undone. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what was ushered in? Death. And yet, what do we see said here? Now that Jesus won, there's no more doubt. I think when Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into that bit of fruit, and suddenly all that regret came up, they began to mourn what they had just done. They probably began to cry. And yet, it says there's no more crying, no more mourning. We've seen the effects of sin, that the, one of the, the things that God said to Eve, that because you've now sinned, there will be pain and childbirth. There isn't just that pain. We see pain physically through cancer and all sorts of other things. We see pain emotionally and the dysfunction of families. We see pain spiritually. And yet now Jesus is saying, there's no more pain. It is finished. So yes, Jesus defeated sin on the cross. We're just waiting for the game to get done. to get to see him even more clearly. So we shouldn't run away from this book. We should go to it to understand who he is and what he will do. We need to realize that this book is from him. So we shouldn't stick it on the shelf and say, oh, you know, I'll stick with the nice happy epistles or I'll study the Gospels. No, we need to understand this one too. But don't get so caught up in the details that you forget that this is actually from Jesus. And not only from him, it is about him. Don't let the details become a messy magic eye picture. Look through it and deeper and see Jesus. Because what this reveals is that he's in control, and he will win. So what should you take away from this today? Well, if you're a Jesus follower, I think you should actually walk out of here today feeling comforted. When I was a kid reading the book of Revelation, I should didn't feel very comforted. I had so many questions, and to be honest, I still have a lot of questions about the book of Revelation. I cannot tell you who the Antichrist is. I cannot tell you exactly what the beast means. I can't tell you all those things. There are some people who claim they can. What I can tell you is that the book reveals God's in control. He's he's got this. And so we don't have to fear. If your life is in Him, you're on Team Jesus, the game is done. We're just waiting for the clock to tick out. So you should actually walk out of here and feel really comforted by this book. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? Then I'm going to invite you to join Team Jesus. Make him your king. Let him be your leader. He's the Lamb who was slain for your sin. Your sin deserved a death. It deserved punishment. But God, out of His mercy, out of His love, decided to come down and take your punishment from We've been seeing all since January till now how God so loves humanity that God was going to come down in the flesh, and live a sinless life, but die a sinner's death in our place. And because Jesus paid the penalty for us, we now have this forgiveness of sin offered to two of us. So if you're not a follower, be invited, accept the gift, take it up. Not easy, I'll tell you. Because it means you can no longer really count yourself the leader of your life. It means you can't continue to give yourself into these other things. It means you give your life to Jesus. When you make Jesus your king, you join the team Jesus. And you get to share the win. You get to enjoy the celebration. So I encourage you don't hold out, accept the gift. Place your faith in Jesus. But most people, when they're ready to make a decision like that, when they're, they're, it's like their eyes have been opened to the beauty of the gospel. They often just express it in prayer. They talk to God and simply say something like this. I realize that I'm a sinner. My sin has got me separated from you. And yet now I understand that Jesus wouldn't die for my sin. So that my sin can be forgiven. So because Jesus, you gave your life to me, i now give my life. When you pray that from a sincere heart, it isn't about magical words. It is about God revealing this gospel to you. And when you place your identity into this, everything changes. You go from being separated from your God to now being accepted and loved and connected to you. You go from being an orphan to being a child. I mean, everything changes. You basically go from your own team. Jesus your king suddenly your life becomes like a revelation because through you you'll begin to unveil Jesus to others you'll show that the life you have is actually from Jesus and as you live out your life as you seek to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived and the other thing, your life is also about Jesus and then when your day comes and your clock ticks to zero will get to enjoy the celebration of being a team Jesus
0: with your Heavenly Father. That's why I invite you to set this gift. Would you join me in prayer? So Heavenly Father,
1: I just start by saying that i spent too many years looking at the book of Revelation as something to fear, scared on, something to run from. And I just want to say thank you for showing me, reminding me that it is about me like all of the scripture. And I pray that my church family capture that today. And I pray for those who know you, who've been following you, and maybe they too have run up from this book. And I pray that today they fall more in love with Jesus because they see this book reveals that you are in control. Some of us here may feel like we understand parts of this book. Some of us here may be absolutely bewildered by it. Father, help us to cling to Jesus, the one who is worthy to hold Scroll and whom guide and protect and who oversees sovereignty in times, because we know we will win. I pray that we will come. God, I also pray for my friends who are here today. I do not know. Minds filled with doubt. There's questions. They have something to whisper to them. Come. God, I pray that right now you give them the courage to say yes to you. They would take that step of faith, placing all of their trust upon you.
0: Father, hear them as
1: Outside of these walls that we work with we live next to. Maybe we even live with them. And they don't know this story. They don't know that Jesus will win. They don't know that the cross was for them. They're caught up in their own little world, their own life. And they're living in a messy, magic eye picture. All they see is the surface. So, Father, I pray everyone. opportunities to show that there's a deeper dimension here. And they would begin to see Jesus through us, through our actions, through our words. And we would give some of the opportunity to share this amazing story. So we ask you prepare the hearts for our friends and our family. And we would create a great harvest of people who would have their eyes open to the gospel, and we would have the joy of watching you do what only you do. And that as we see more and more of these people place their faith in Jesus, they would Become part of that team and be with us. Be blessed in this world, Father. I pray that you just work in us and through us. That you might use things that little revelation to accomplish. In Jesus' name, we pray together.